But this morning we're, we're going to focus on just a few verses, verses 5 through 7. But I want to read the whole chapter for the context. Zechariah writes, Then he, that is an angel, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand delivered from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have made your iniquity pass away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of Yahweh was standing by. And the angel of Yahweh testified to Joshua, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will keep the responsibility given by me, then you will also render justice in my house and also keep my courts, and I will grant you access to walk among these who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a wondrous sign. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have put before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares Yahweh of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, every one of you will call for his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pause and pray one more time. There are some things here that uh, we have questions about. We need help. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving every portion of your word and for this portion given to your servant, Zechariah. And we uh, want to be quick to confess that there are portions of your word that we struggle perhaps to understand. And so we come humbly, asking not only for understanding with our minds, but that you would impress upon the hearts of your people what you have for us today. And may above all, in our meditation in the next few moments, may Christ be exalted among us. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this is, as I shared last Sunday morning, one of the most unique passages in all of Holy Scripture. One of the most unique passages in all of Holy Scripture it's a strong claim, but it's the only place in Scripture where we see a man, in this case Joshua, the high priest, before the very throne room of God in heaven. And there we see none other than Satan, the accuser of the brethren, 
and we see the angel of the Lord, which is none other than Christ himself. Only place in scripture we have a witness to that scene. And I hope, those of you who were here last Sunday morning, if I can encourage you to remember that you are glorying in this passage. I, I hope that this passage in this little book in the Old Testament that maybe is neglected and maybe we think is maybe too difficult for us to understand, I hope that you never forget that here in Zechariah chapter 3 is one of the most magnificent and beautiful and vivid pictures of God's justifying work towards sinners. For here, Joshua is said to be clothed in filthy garments. He's, he's the high priest. He is the representative of Israel before God. And it's clear in the context that his filthy garments are representative, not of poor laundry skills, but of sin, of iniquity. Before God, he is condemned. And Joshua is guilty as an individual, even though he was an upstanding uh, citizen of Israel, he was likely a God-fearing man. Nonetheless, like all of us, he's a sinner. And more importantly, he represented a nation who had nearly a thousand-year record of sinning overtly and terribly against their God and ours. And there is the angel of the Lord, and he rebukes in verse 2, Satan, the accuser. He silences Satan. He removes the filthy garments from Joshua the sinner and he clothes him in robes of righteousness, festal robes. It's an amazing picture that God justifies sinners not by their somehow making themselves better or more holy, but that God justifies or declares sinners righteous in his sight by causing their sin our sin to be accounted for in the death and sufferings of his son Jesus and he declares us righteous not because of any deeds of our own but because of the righteousness of his son the work of Christ in his life of obedience that we are enwrapped with in the presence of God so that as we just sang in Arise, My Soul, Arise, we can stand before God confident, not with any self-confidence, but Christ-confidence. We can draw near to God, not because we are good, but because Christ is good. We can come to the very holy of holies, the very presence of God, and serve as priests, not in the outer courts, but in the very innermost room, because of Jesus, we are dressed in his robes of his righteousness by God's own doing. And this is the doctrine of justification, that by faith in Jesus Christ, God declares sinners righteousness, righteous with a righteousness not their own, but of Christ. It's marvelous. It's wonderful. And I hope that you are rejoicing in it and continue to do so. But here we learn that we are justified, declared righteous in the sight of God, not merely for the joy of being declared righteous in the sight of God. 
but that God justifies men and women, justifies sinners for a purpose. And that purpose is the purpose ultimately for which all of us were created. And that purpose is worship. Worship. To worship is to, with our minds, our hearts, our mouths, our bodies, to ascribe to God the honor, the dignity, the adoration, the worth, the praise of who he is. This is why we were made, each of us. We were made in the image of God. This discussion about what that means when God says in the opening chapters of Genesis, let us make man in our own image, male and female, he made them, this text says, men and women made in the image of God. But most simply, that means that we reflect, we make known, we magnify, we multiply and make known something, however imperfectly, of who God is, of his character, of his attributes, of his glory. And of course, there's aspects of God that we, we cannot communicate. We are not omnipotent, only he is. We are not omnipresent in all places, he is. But we can reflect something of the love of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, all these things, the faithfulness of God. And so we do this by way of our creation. In fact, all men and women in this sense worship God whether they want to or not. They don't have a choice because they are God's image bearers. They may deny God, they hate God, they may deface God, they may blaspheme God, but all men and women are made in the image of God, bear the image of God, and thereby, in that sense, whether they want to or not, men and women bring honor to God. But of course, God wants us to choose to worship him. We are made to want to worship God, to express our will in the worship of God. The, the worship that God wants, that God really wants from us, is the worship that originates in the heart of a man or woman. Worship that dominates his or her will. It's guided, worship that's guided by a biblically instructed mind. Worship that is, in expre is expressed in and by and through a redeemed body, ultimately a glorified body at the resurrection. This is the kind of worship that God wants. Heart, mind, soul, body, informed, biblical, right worship. Jesus, in his interaction with the woman at the well, Samaritan woman, he said, an hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is after worshipers, and he justifies you, sinner, and me. He declares us righteous in his sight for holy service of worship. Holy service of worship. Priests are a little bit uh, unfamiliar to us. Most of us growing up in this culture, the only kind of priest maybe we think of as Roman Catholic priests and 
Unfortunately, uh, we, we have some, by and large in the culture, bad impressions. Uh, and we have to be fair as evangelical Christians that, unfortunately, uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, is not unique in having faults among its leaders. But nonetheless, we, we, don't, we don't understand priesthood. It's, it's marred, and it's uh, certainly Roman Catholic priesthood is not um, a biblical form of leadership. But priests, most fundamentally in the Bible, priests, at the heart of a priest's role, was and is worship. Rendering service, honor, dignity, praise that the Lord is due. Priests are firstly and fundamentally worshipers of God. And not only do priests, like Joshua, the high priest, worship God individually, but in Zechariah chapter 3, it's clear in the context, what is clear in the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, that priests, especially the high priests, represented the nation. They led the people of God in worship of God. Israel, in fact, as a nation, was set apart to be a nation that leads the rest of the world in worship. In Exodus chapter 19, we saw this last Sunday morning, but in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God says to the nation of Israel, If you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. The nation as a whole was to serve in, in somewhat of a priestly functioning, teaching the rest of the world, the nations about God, and then leading the rest of the world in worship of God. In some sense, Israel has done that because, after all, the scriptures that we have, as we're giving attention to this morning, have you thought of this, is, is written almost entirely by men of Israel, Old and New Testament. Uh, understandably, uh, these are the scriptures that originate from the nation or the people of Israel but God's intent all along was through Israel that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, would go to all nations so that in the end what we find in Revelation is not just Israel worshiping the Lord, but Israel in Isaiah and Revelation and Ezekiel and other places in the Old Testament, Israel leading men and women redeemed from other nations in the worship of God. We're just taking a few moments to, to orient ourselves to the role of priests. The nation was to serve as a priest. And from the nation of Israel, God chose, of course, some, like the tribe of Levi, to serve as priests. And then even there, God narrowed it down, and the house of Aaron was to have particular roles. And even then, there was only one man who was to serve as the high priest. So from among the ranks of priests, God chose one man, the high priest, to lead the other priests, to teach and lead the nation of priests so that the nation would serve as a priest leading the rest of the world ultimately in the worship of God. Do you see this, this priestly function and how it's tied to worship? Priests of various distinction, but all in common having 
as their most fundamental role, the worship of God. And what was true of Israel of old and of the priesthood, whether it be the Levites or the sons of Aaron or the high priest, is true of of us. We who are New Testament believers, we who are believers in Jesus Christ, most of us Gentiles, the church, it's the same for us. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, describes the church as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ. So the church, again, we are a holy priesthood designed by God. You believer, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, after that wonderful New Testament letter telling us about the sufficiency of Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins, that Jesus is our high priest. Nonetheless, Hebrews goes on to say to all of us as believers, listen to this, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable service with reverence and awe. Acceptable service with reverence and awe. We are called to be priests and to give ourselves to the service of the worship of God. In fact, in the New Testament, most often, not always, but most often when you see that, or very often, maybe I should say, very often when you see that term service, there's an allusion to the Old Testament sacrificial worship service. In other words, it's not merely serving people by helping them out. Of course, that's part of our honoring God. But we live in a day and age in which even those who profess faith in Christ, we don't think of ourselves as having a duty to worship God. And I'm going to show you here from the text how this is placed upon us as justified people. But I wonder, is that how you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself, believer, as a priest of God? Do you think of yourself as a priest? You are. Do you think of yourselves then having a duty and responsibility in your life and in your conduct and in the public services of worship of God to do your part in lifting up and magnifying the great name of God and making sure that you do that in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to God? Do we think of ourselves in that way? I fear, by and large, in our day, men and women, even who bear the name of Christ and who profess faith in Christ, a worship service is just an event on the calendar on a day of the week. It's just something you go to and you experience and then you kind of move on. But think of of even that title, in the worship service. What do we mean by that? It means that when we gather as an assembly, as a church of men and women who profess faith in Jesus Christ, we are saying we are going to meet together and we are going to carry out our God-given responsibility to worship this God together. 
because he still wants it. And yes, there are some of us up here who have a a, a particular role in leading the people in the worship, but dear brother, sister in Christ, I'm telling you the truth. I, I just need to tell you the truth. You are a priest with solemn responsibilities to do your part in making sure that the God who redeems you and justifies you is honored and praised as he ought to be. So look with me now in Zechariah chapter 3. As we've looked at the context of worship, that to be a priest is to lead others in worship, to worship God yourself. We see now, I want to, I want to give you three, three headings if you're keeping an outline. And first, in verses 4 and 5, we see that Christ justifies and sanctifies his elect for holy service. Christ justifies and sanctifies his elect for holy service. I'm saying Christ, of course, what is true of Christ is true of the Father. But the angel of of the Lord is prominent in this passage. God is exalting his son even here in the Old Testament. And the angel of Yahweh, who is distinct from Yahweh, the Lord, but at the same time one with the Lord, who speaks as if he is the Lord, speaks to, in verse 4, again, to, to jo- the angels surrounding Joshua and says, remove his filthy garments from him, tells Joshua that he's removed his iniquity and clothes him with festal robes. He's, his sin is removed and he is declared righteous in the sight of God. He is justified and Christ does that. Look what he says. The angel of the Lord says, I have made your iniquity pass away. And then it is the angel who speaks to those who are standing by, has them remove the filthy garments and clothes him with festival robes. Christ justifies and sanctifies his elect, but he does so for a purpose. And this becomes clear in verse 5. Interesting here, verse 5, then I said, who's speaking there? Zechariah, the prophet. Interesting. Uh, Here's this scene in heaven in the throne room. There's God. There's Joshua, the high priest, Satan accusing him, Christ defending him. And Zechariah, the prophet, has a vision and he's looking at this. He's been listening. But here in verse 5, this is wonderful. He's seeing what Christ is doing towards Joshua and what he's going to do on behalf of the nation. He's going to remove their iniquity. He's going to clothe them in robes of righteousness. In other words, God is restoring Israel to her priestly role. And he will do that in that day, verse 10. In that day, in that future time. And Zechariah, who has seen Israel's humiliation, who is seeing the temple right now in really a, a faint shadow of what it once was, when he sees God working 
Christ working to restore Israel, to cleanse her of her iniquity, to clothe her in her priestly righteous robes. He then can't help but blurt out, put a clean turban on his head. What's going on there? That was the finishing piece of a priest, the high priest's outfit. It was on the top of his head. And as we saw last Sunday morning, God ordered that the high priest would wear this, this magnificent hat. I know we're not, in our culture, guys, much of a hat wearing except for baseball hats. Uh, I love baseball hats. I've never worn a turban. But this, we have to trust this isn't tacky. This is amazing. This is regal, glorious attire and garb. And God had commanded that on the front of that majestic headpiece was a gold plate and on it was written, Holy to the Lord. Holy to Yahweh. Actually, in Hebrew, it would be this way. But anyways, holy to the Lord. Holy to Yahweh. And what that meant was that the high priest and the nation that he represented were not just justified in the sight of God, not just righteous, but made righteous for a purpose, to the Lord, to serve the Lord, to serve him in worship. And Zechariah is so excited. He's like a spectator at a, at a, a great event sporting event and maybe it's a championship and you're maybe you're there among the throngs of tens of thousands of people and there's your team and you're cheering for team and there's some guy that's got the ball and he's breaking through and he's running with it and there you up up in the the nosebleed section because those are the only tickets you could afford maybe or whatever and you're up there and from that great distance you're saying go 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 and you're thinking um the guy can't hear you <laughs> uh he's running but um he really not going to hear you from there. So, I mean, who do you think you are cheering this guy on to go and score a goal? Well, well you're not thinking that you're somebody. What you're doing is you're, you're so involved and excited for your team and cheering them on. You're rejoicing in the cause that you can't help but open your mouth and say, go. This is what Zachariah is doing. Place the turban on his head. It's pretty awesome. He's actually commanding angels to place a turban on Joshua the high priest's head. Wow. We might think some nerve, but we learn here that the angel of the Lord, verse 5, was standing by. Christ is standing there giving full approval, and he loves Zechariah's enthusiasm. Because by expressing that, Zechariah is believing in faith what God will do towards Joshua and towards a remnant of the nation in the last days. He's overjoyed at the thought that Israel is not only ultimately justified and that God's elect are justified, but they are brought into service. You notice that I used the word there, elect. I'm using that because it, it's, uh, it covers um, Joshua, the high priest. It couples, covers that remnant of Israel that God will save. It covers you, believer, you who are chosen and elect. Uh, John Calvin, by the way, didn't come up with that term that, that's actually in the Bible. And here in verse uh, chapter 3, you see that God, Christ refers to God as verse 2, the God who has chosen Jerusalem. God elected Israel in his sovereign plan. He chose Israel for a unique purpose. 
So Christ justifies and sanctifies his elect, whether it be Joshua the high priest, Israel of old, we who are here this morning and the redeemed of every generation. He justifies you and declares you righteous in the sight of God for a purpose, holy service. You, believer, as it were, have a turban and a plate on it, holy to Yahweh, holy to the Lord. He doesn't save you ultimately for you. He saves you for himself. You are bought with a price. You are, your sin has been removed at a great price. You have been clothed in the righteousness of God. Not to simply stand back and now and have comfort that you're forgiven of your sins. You are saved to serve. You are sanctified to serve. And not just any service the service of the worship of God. God justifies you to make you a worshiper. Not just to attend a worship service. That's different. That's part of it. To make you a priest. Sorry. A priest. A worshiper. Secondly, Not only does Christ justify and sanctify his elect for holy service, secondly, Christ summons his elect to holy service. Christ summons his elect. To summon is to command. If you receive a summons to court, you better uh, respond to it. And here we go from a scene of grace, and this whole scene is one of grace, but Uh, Joshua didn't do anything to have his iniquity removed. Uh, He didn't have anything, do anything in order to gain these these robes. Jesus Christ doesn't look at him and say, well, you're a pretty good prospect. So since you're a nice guy and, you know, since since you seem to be making some good decisions, I'll remove your sin. No. In the context there, back up in verse two and three, it's just the sovereign kindness of God, the choice of God. Of course, in time, God justifies using faith as a key instrument. None of us are justified apart from faith, a a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he, with the, in other words, Joshua didn't do anything to gain his justification. But then in verse 6 and 7, now Christ, the angel of the Lord, calls justified Joshua to respond in a certain way he says in verse 7 if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep the responsibility given by me then you will also render justice in my house keep my courts and I will grant you access to walk among those who are standing here if if you do two things keep my ways You mean after we're justified, we still need to concern ourselves with knowing the ways of the Lord and keeping them? Yes. To keep means to cherish, to know, to guard, to possess. The angel of the Lord says to Joshua and to the nation, you have a responsibility now as justified and righteous in my sight. They are summoned if you will walk in my ways and if you will, secondly, keep the responsibility given by me. 
To keep my ways means learning and doing God's commands. Israel was to know the commands of God and to do them, not as a means to justification, but as those who were recipients of mercy. And then the angel says, Christ says, to not only keep my ways, to obey my laws, in other words, but to keep the responsibility. And these are priestly responsibilities to worship and lead others in right worship. That's what priests do. They worship God personally, and then in their role, they help teach others and lead others in the right worship of God. I say right worship because there's wrong worship. You don't worship God however you want. And of course, from church to church, culture to culture, there's going to be you know, some different appearances and how from age, generation to generation. But one of the things I hope you've noticed is in our worship at Reformation Bible Church, we're trying to stick to exactly what God has commanded. We read the scriptures. We're commanded in the New Testament to devote ourselves to the reading of scripture. We sing the scriptures. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We pray. We fellowship. We preach the word and read it. These are all things that are given to us and are aspects of our worship. So Christ tells Joshua, and by extent the nation of Israel, that with justification comes responsibility to know God's ways and to take care of the responsibilities given to them. And, And we don't have time this morning, but there are numerous Old Testament prophetic passages that tell us that one day Israel and the Levitical priests will actually literally do just that. Just one example in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 44. God had given to the prophet Ezekiel a marvelous vision of the future millennial temple and the worship of Christ and God in the kingdom. This has never taken place, that this temple that's described in Ezekiel and the latter part of Ezekiel has, has never been built before. Um, it was, God took numerous chapters to describe the details of this temple and its worship. But in Ezekiel 44, verse 15, God says, The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the responsibility of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me. They will fulfill their role. They will do that. And then we learn that in the last days, in Micah chapter 4, another beautiful passage, listen to this, just these two verses, speaking of the future. Micah 4.1, Now it will be that in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills and peoples will stream to it. This is a picture of, of what will happen during the thousand year reign of Christ on this earth. Peoples from around the world will stream to Jerusalem and to the millennial temple. Verse 2, many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of the God of Jacob, 
that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Well, Christ will teach in that day, but how will Christ teach the peoples who are coming from all the nations? By these priests of Israel that God will have justified and redeemed. It's a marvelous picture that in the last days, Israel and her priesthood, Israel as a nation and individually in the priests, she will fulfill her God-given purpose to lead the nations in the worship of God. This is also described in Isaiah. This is a frequent theme in the Old Testament prophets, that Israel one day will be given by God <clears throat> excuse me, a new heart to worship God. <clears throat> Thirdly, and finally this morning, not only does Christ summon us to serve, and I, I neglected to say that, of course, in the New Testament, we, too, are summoned to serve. I've already read a few passages, such as the one in Hebrews, that we are to offer up to God acceptable service. So with justification comes responsibility to serve But not only does Christ summon, he also promises, thirdly and finally, Christ rewards his elect for their faithful holy service. He rewards his elect. At the second half of verse 7, Christ says, If you you walk in my ways, if you keep responsibility, then he says to Joshua and to his people, then you also, three things— You will render justice in my house. Secondly, you will keep my courts. And thirdly, I will grant you access to walk among those who are standing here. So that's just like God. God gives two commands, and if they obey, he gives them three blessings. You see that? Gives them two commands, and if they obey and they're faithful, he says, I'll reward you. This isn't justification. This is reward. And the Bible is clear that even among those who are justified and declared righteous inside of God, God does reward those who serve him. First, Christ says, you will render justice in my house. In other words, in the future millennial temple, Joshua, the high priest, the other priests around him, and the nation of Israel as a whole will have a ruling role. They will have a leadership role among the nations In particular, in God's house, his temple, they will have a unique and privileged role. It doesn't mean that others of us who are in Christ and who are believers, and we also are priests, that we're somehow second class. Far from it. Won't you rejoice that this nation who has rebelled against God again and again and again and again and again will finally, in the last days, be restored by God and fulfill her task with honor. We will rejoice in that. So they will have a unique role. Of course, we also learn in Revelation that we who are believers will reign with Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.14, Paul says, if we are faithful, we will reign with Christ. So believer, if you keep the ways of God, and if you keep your responsibility as a worshiper, not only will you bring pleasure to God, But God will honor you for that. 
Secondly, Christ says, you will keep my courts. Not only will they reign, will we reign with Christ, but the elect will keep his courts. In other words, this is the joy of the responsibility in leading in worship. Um, Israel will have, as I said, a unique role. It's clear in the book of Ezekiel. We'll have a unique role in the temple courts of Israel in that day. And it's wonderful. And then thirdly, Jesus Christ promises, if you keep my ways and fulfill the responsibility I give to you, thirdly, you will have access to those, verse 7, who walk, you will have access to walk among those who are standing here. Well, who's he referring to? The scene is the throne room of God, the the same place that Isaiah saw the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. This is the place of the angels that serve God, that are so amazing and glorified and beauty, that they are so majestic, they cause most men to faint, like even the Apostle John. And Christ says, if you serve me by keeping my ways, if you fulfill the responsibilities I give you, you will have access Here's, here's what it, he means. With the angels to the throne of God. You will have access with the angels. In other words, you will be right there with the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The New Testament clearly teaches rewards for those even who are believers. We are not justified by works. But God does not let the good deeds of his justified people go unrecognized. Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, if any man's work um, is built on the foundation that Christ has laid, he, that man, will receive a reward. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this blows most people away. They haven't really noticed this. Um, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 6.3. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.3 to believers, you ready for this? Rhetorical question. Do you not know that we will judge angels? He means it. I mean, of course you know, but we say we do. (laughs) Yeah, you, believer, that you will have a role in the future kingdom of God in which you will some way judge angels. So Christ says you will have access among these glorious angels angels in the presence of God have you picked up this is serious stuff this is why believer your life however ordinary it may seem you are no ordinary person you have been bought with the blood of Christ you have been redeemed justified sanctified set apart for holy service worship to God but in closing we rejoice this morning that Joshua ultimately the high priest was a picture of Christ, our high priest. Joshua after, means Yahweh saves. In the New Testament, Joshua in Greek is Jesus. Jesus is Joshua, ultimately. He is our high priest. He is the one who has been counted of worthy and is the high priest of our confession, says the author of Hebrews. And so now in just a moment as we come to the Lord's table, we come recognizing that Christ is our high priest who has led us to the presence of God. Christ is the one who through his death and through the shedding of his blood has atoned for our sins. 
It is Christ who makes us clean and dresses us in his righteousness so that we may worship God. Let's pray. God, we ask your forgiveness that we don't take seriously enough or recognize the glorious role you've given to every believer. Help us as we learn how to worship you. May you today cause your people to rejoice in your justification. And may you move in the hearts of your people to cause us to want to serve you and walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.